Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Jesus Christ is the best life that was ever lived. And if that is true, then we can look at Jesus' life and we can draw from His life components that if we apply them to our own lives, can make for the absolute best life we could possibly live. And that's the focus of this series, looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of Luke. So this morning, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, where momentarily we'll begin reading with verse 42. Luke chapter 4, verse 42. As I mentioned in my prayer, I want you to notice these beautiful flowers over here. They are in memory and honor of Jake Cordell by their whole family. And uh, we remember and rejoice and love the very name of Jake Cordell. And we appreciate uh, his family bringing these flowers in here today. I uh, want to welcome all of you who are our guests. We have several special uh, guests in the congregation with us, and we just want you to feel welcome and also uh, right at home. Right at home. The title of this message is Taking Time Out for What is Essential. Taking Time Out for What is Essential. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. If you found out one day that your house was burning, what would you grab on your way out? If all of a sudden you were in your house and you discovered that your house was on fire, your house was burning, what would you grab on your way out? There's a photographer, his name is Foster Huntington, and he got to thinking about this question. And uh, what would he grab on his way out of his house if his house were on fire? And being a photographer, he decided to photograph all of the things that he would grab on his way out. He photographed 18 things. Then he got to thinking, I wonder what my friends would grab on their way out if their their house was on fire. And so uh, he went and he did a little unofficial family and friends survey, nothing scientific about it. But he asked all of them, what would you grab on your way out if you discovered that your house was on fire? And they began to think about it and relate to him several different answers. And then, again, being the photographer that he was, He asked them to photograph the items that they would grab on their way out. Over the course of thinking about this, uh, uh, Foster Huntington decided that instead of 18 things he would grab on his way out, he narrowed them to two. It's probably a good thing because uh, I don't think he'd make it out if he tried to grab 18 things on his way out. But it is really interesting what his friends and family photographed as what they would take out, what they would grab on their way out of the house if it was burning. One woman said, I would grab one husband, one son, and three cats. 
I read that, and that's exactly the way she put it. One husband, one son, and three cats. And the first thing I thought of was, does she have more than one husband and more than one son along with the three cats? Because she was very specific. One husband, one son, three cats. Another person said, I would grab the film, The Princess Bride, that I have on Blu-ray as I was going out of my burning house. Another person said, my daughter, everything else can be replaced. I'm assuming this person was single. Maybe not. A woman said, a few packs of my favorite green tea in case I'm thirsty. Another person said, my favorite earrings that I wore to my wedding. Another person said, a ring I got from my dad when I was 12. Another person said, a mystery box that I've never opened, that my, my father put some things inside before it was nailed shut, forever closed until I am an old man and he is long gone. A mystery box. Someone else said, my grandfather's Bible. Another person said, I would grab on the way out of my burning house, Ernest Hemingway's selected letters. An iPhone, somebody said. My wallet, somebody said. A purse, a lady said. A very old teddy bear from my childhood, someone said. A moleskin journal, which contains all of my thoughts and ideas, someone else said. A house key, one man said, because you need it even though your house is burning. Hmm. My globe to always remind me of all the places I dream of seeing, somebody said. And then finally, one lady said, if my house was on fire, I would grab on the way out flip-flops, a bikini, and a skirt because if my house burns down, I'm going to the beach. At the end of his unofficial survey, Foster Huntington concluded that that question, what would you take out of a burning house, your burning house, forces people to think about what is really important in their lives. Jesus was a master of doing that. By the time we get to Luke chapter 4, verse 42, he's had one heck of a week. He was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and he had to argue with John to get John to do it. I've never seen a preacher that you had to argue with to get them to baptize you. Most preachers are quite eager to do that. We will conclude this service in just a moment with a, uh, at the end of the service with a baptism. Robert Smith will be baptized, and Trevor's going to baptize him. I look forward to seeing that, but... Normally, preachers are very eager to baptize someone. John was not so eager. Jesus had to wrestle with him over that. And then he came out of the baptistry, the Jordan River, and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit led him into the desert to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Mark's gospel says it more forcefully. It says, and the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan 40 days. And at the end of that 40 days, having been tempted and having not eaten, Jesus was hungry. And then Matthew and Luke say, at that point, Satan comes along with three very specific 
temptations targeting Jesus' physical weakness. So after being baptized reluctantly by John and spending 40 plus days uh, enduring the shenanigans of Satan, the Bible says that Jesus comes out of the desert and goes to his hometown, Nazareth, where he comes into the synagogue, it's worship day, and he sits down and Uh, Since they recognized him to be a visiting minister, they handed him the Bible, which would have been a scroll because they didn't have uh, our modern day books and iPads and Kindles and so forth. He sits down, he unrolls the scroll, stands up then and reads the scroll. It's from Isaiah. It is a messianic prophecy. That is a prophecy concerning the coming Christ or Messiah. And it was a place where God inspired Isaiah to say, the Holy Spirit is upon me for he has anointed me to preach the gospel, to uh, proclaim release to the captives and those in prison and freedom from oppression and the disadvantaged. And he continued reading the passage and when he was through, he rolled it back up, he handed it to the ministry attendant and he sat down. There was a pregnant moment of silence. And then Jesus spoke up with all the eyes fastened on him, Luke says, and he says, this day, in your very eyes, this scripture is fulfilled. And they were amazed. Immediately concluding that the scripture that Jesus talked about and the fact that it was being fulfilled in their very eyes was applying to them. They were the ones that they concluded would be set free. They were the ones who would suddenly experience freedom and joy from being disadvantaged and being the victims of everybody else. But as they were applauding Jesus and really praising him and lauding him for his reading of this scripture and his interpretation of it, Jesus interrupted them and said, it's not about you. It's about disadvantaged people who are nothing like you. It's about prisoners who are not even related to you. It's about people who are disadvantaged and who are oppressed that you may indeed have oppressed. And all of a sudden, in response to those words, this crowd who universally were praising Jesus and wanted to anoint him king totally turned face on him and every one of them, Luke says, the whole group in the synagogue turned against him, were furious. They dragged him out of the synagogue and they were carrying him up to a hill where there was a bluff for the purpose of throwing him off the bluff to kill him. They went from adoring him enough to be king to angry enough at him to kill him all within a span of just a half hour. And Luke says that as they were about to kill him, He managed to walk right through the crowd and he got away from them. And he went from there to Capernaum, which was a a small town on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was the hometown of, of Simon and Andrew. You remember Simon and Andrew, brothers. Simon, Jesus gave a nickname. He started calling him Rocky in English. In Greek, it is Petros or Peter. Simon the Rock, Simon Peter. It was their hometown, and once they get to Capernaum, Luke tells us something that is a little bit surprising. We didn't know Peter was married. Luke says he was married, and Luke says that Peter's wife's mother, Peter's mother-in-law, was sick of an incurable fever. And when Jesus went into the house where she was, he touched her, maybe said some things to her, and he healed her immediately of this fever. 
And when the news got out that he had cured her of this, in, of this terminal fever, people started flocking to where Jesus was. They brought their sick folks to him. They brought people who they believed were possessed by evil spirits to him. And the Bible says in verse 42 that Jesus stole away to a solitary place. People were looking for him when they finally found him in this solitary place. They brought their loved ones to him. And Jesus, Luke says, healed every single one of them, even cast out some of the evil spirits that some of them were possessed with. And so in contrast to the folks who hated him in Nazareth, the folks in Capernaum started begging him to stay. And Jesus said, I can't. I can't stay. And the reason he couldn't stay is because staying in Capernaum went against everything that Jesus knew was essential for accomplishing God's purpose for his life. Now we're talking about the best life. How we can discover and apply the principles of Jesus to our lives in order that we too can experience the best life we can have. And I want to uh, reveal to you three uh, principles in these short three verses in Jesus' life that we can immediately start applying to our lives to make our lives the best they can be. Principle number one. Jesus set God-honoring goals for his life. And so you and I need to set goals, but not just set goals. We need to set God-honoring goals for our lives. In fact, an awareness of what God wants to do in your life and an awareness of what God has called you to do, your God-given mission in life, is essential for you to experience the very best life that you can experience. It's no secret that people ought to set goals. Uh, successful and effective people uh, that, that we read about, hear about, famous people, not so famous people, all are masters at setting goals and accomplishing those goals. Some of the best athletes that you and I have heard of, top-level athletes, they, they win because they set goals and accomplish them. Business entrepreneurs, they are successful because they set goals and they, accomplishing, they accomplish them. Setting goals helps you have a long-term vision of where you're going, and it helps you focus on getting from here to there effectively and successfully. Jesus knew what his goals were. He knew and understood what God had called him to do. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is in Luke chapter 9. In the middle of that chapter, Luke says that, that there was a point in Jesus' life that was a turning point. He says, and Jesus, knowing that the time was nearing, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was very much aware of what God had put him on this earth to accomplish. He was very much aware of it, and he had set it for his own goals. Now, you and I need to set goals, but let me just add to this idea of setting goals that we need to set God-honoring goals. Now, what that means is, when you and I set goals for our lives, we need to seek God with everything we can to ensure that the goals that we feel are appropriate to our lives, are congruent, that is, they agree with the goals that God has for 
our lives. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. In other words, Paul is saying this. Lay your lives on the altar of God in such a way that you will not be shaped by the world. You see, the world wants to shape your goals. And so often you and I yield to the temptation of allowing the world to shape our vision and our future and our goals. And Paul says, don't be conformed to the world's goals, but be transformed from the inside out by God's goals for you and your life. Set God-honoring goals in your life. Now, I hope this is not the case, but there may be one or two or three or five or ten folks here in the services this morning who are thinking, you know, I don't have any goals for my life. That's amazing, really, when you think about it. Would you set out on a vacation with no destination in mind? I've never done that. Now, I realize some of you are old enough that you're saying, well, you know, we, my wife and I or my husband and I, we, we sat on a trip last, last year and we had no idea where we were going. We were just going to stop wherever, wherever the wind took us. Yeah, but you at least headed in some direction, didn't you? I mean, most people who tell me that who live here on the, on the eastern side of the United States, when they head out, they're either heading westward or they're heading northward. They have some idea of a destination. You wouldn't head out in your driveway and look over and say, all right, honey, I don't know where we're going, but I'm just going to take my hands off the steering wheel and see where this Chevy will lead us. You wouldn't do that. You have a goal in mind, and that goal determines the route you take, set God-given goals for your life. Jesus did it, was the master of it. If he did it, we must do it. Principle number two, determine what is essential for the accomplishment of those God-honoring goals. Determine what is essential. And let me tell you this, not everything is going to be essential. In fact, most things in your life will not be essential to the accomplishing of those goals. In fact, they will be more like distractions than they are things that are conducive to you accomplishing those goals. You know, I, I really believe that you and I are, uh, we are blessed beyond measure to live at this time in this country. We're blessed. Uh, I do not go anywhere without a tube of chapstick. I'd like to see the hands of everybody who has a tube of chapstick on them right now. Raise your hand. Raise them high. Raise them high. Quite a few people. Thank you, sir. I believe any woman or man who knows the Lord and is godly has a tube of chapstick in their pockets. I don't know why, but my lips chap. I don't care if it's summer or winter, they chap really easy. And when my lips chap, they burn. Now, can you imagine living around 1800 or 1810 and having chapped lips and not having chapstick? Now, I, I know you're, you're laughing at me, but it's a serious thing. I don't know how people stood it. 
I don't, I really don't know how people, st- I don't know how people stood getting the flu or even, even a common cold back in the early 1800s. I mean, there are some things that, that with, uh, uh, medical treatment and prescriptions, we can, we may suffer for a few days, but we'll kind of breeze right on through them. That would have been the death nail for people in the early 1800s. Can you imagine it? I guess that's the reason the lifespan in the 1800s was around the mid 40s and early 50s, whereas now it's in the mid 70s and increasing with every year. We live in a, a blessed time. Did you know, ladies, in the early 1800s that two out of every five women died in childbirth? Two out of every five. That means that the moment you would get pregnant, you were both rejoicing over the prospect of having a child and at the same time knowing that there was a 35 to 40% chance that you were going to die in the birth of that child. Can you imagine a woman having to deal with those thoughts? In 1810, there was a uh, doctor. His name was Ignaz Semmelweis. You'll want to remember that in case you want to name that, uh, name your child after that. Ignaz Semmelweis. He was German. He uh, was a very successful doctor. Most doctors did a number of things. Uh, including giving birth to children or helping mothers give birth to children. And um, most of them had a success rate of about uh, 60, 65 percent. 35 to 40 percent of all women died in childbirth. But Dr. Simmelweis had a success rate of 49 out of every 50. One out of 50 women that he treated gave birth to their children And died. Only one out of 50. 49 out of 50 survived. There was a routine that doctors did in those days. They were, in addition to being doctors, they were also the coroners. And the coroner would go first, his routine would take him first to the morgue where he would perform autopsies on dead people. The morgue in those days would be adjacent to the labor and delivery room. And the doctor would go to the morgue, do an autopsy on a dead body, and then would proceed straight from the morgue, as his routine was, and go straight to labor and delivery where he would deliver children. And they did not know at that time the importance of washing their hands. And so they didn't wash their hands, except for Dr. Simmelweis. And by washing his hands, he accidentally came to a conclusion that everybody else laughed at him about. And that was, he said, the problem, I think, is we're taking uh, bacteria from from decaying bodies, corpses, and without washing our hands, we we are intruding them, injecting them into the bodies of mothers who are giving birth. They get a fever from this and they die. And he says... I've concluded that washing hands thoroughly between the morgue and the labor and delivery room is what's giving me such a high success and survival rate. And the other doctors were laughing at him when he was he was talking to them about it. And finally, he got agitated with them so much that he said this. He says, look, 
I wash my hands and I have a 98% success rate. You don't wash your hands and you have about a 60% success rate. He says, and we can argue about it all we want to and you can laugh at me all you want to. But while we're arguing about it, women are dying. You see, uh, Dr. Simmelweis had a goal. His goal was to successfully deliver a healthy baby with the mother surviving and also healthy. That was his goal. That was his singular goal as a doctor. And so he was intent on doing whatever was essential to make sure that he accomplished that goal with a very high percentage of success. And hand washing turned out to be one of the essentials. When you and I have God-given goals, we need then to make sure that we determine what is essential to meeting those goals. And just like a Where's Waldo picture that where, where it's so difficult to find Waldo because of all the distractions and the other people, we have to take all those out and out of the way so that we can see Waldo, see and focus on the clear goal. In most of our lives, we have too much clutter to see God's goal for us. And we need to take out some of the essentials. Now, here's the problem with that. Most of, we need to take out some of the distractions. Most of the distractions that we, we need to remove are good things. And we don't like moving good things out of the picture. Churches are notorious for this. We had our first brainstorming session. There were about uh, 37 or so people there Thursday night. I appreciate those who came and and for those of you who want to come we'll have another one on Sunday afternoon February the 10th four o'clock if you'd like to come we'll continue the discussion but one of the things that was mentioned from from time to time among some of the people is that we'd like to for to have a church where where there is something for everybody and anybody in the community will find something for them and we have all kinds of activities for all kinds of people in the community it sounds wonderful it sounds so great it would kill us dead You say, well, why? Because a church can't be all things to all people. A church has to determine what is our goal and what are the most essential ways to meet that goal. And anything, even good things, that don't uh, move us toward the goal need to be moved aside. And that means some good things. Otherwise, we will kill ourselves. About six or seven years ago, uh, we did something like that here, and it was, quite frankly, it, a, a large part of it, the biggest part of it was my own fault. We had, we had uh, three worship services going on. We had two Sunday schools going on. We had Sunday night. We had discipleship training. We had upward basketball. We had a fall festival, which was highly attended, but not much productive. We had all kinds of camps, all kinds of retreats going on throughout the year. I mean, if ever there was a busy church, Palmetto Baptist Church was a busy church. And it got to the point where we exhausted people so much that the nominating committee would go around trying to ask people to do stuff, nobody would agree to do it. You know why? Because we had exhausted our people. Because we were doing a lot of Where's Waldo activities with all the distractions still in the picture. You can't do that. You can't do it in your personal life. I know we want to. I know we'd love to. You can't do it. It will exhaust you. It will kill you. And it will kill a church. Determine what is essential. Jesus had two essentials from these two, three verses that I want to convey to you. One was he knew that, that his time was essential. Time was of the essence. 
He knew that his time was limited. His ministry only lasted three years, three plus years. He knew that he was running short on time and, and he was not, tr- he was not riding an Indianapolis race car or a NASCAR. He was, he was going on foot, maybe riding on a donkey or a camel, but he had to make tracks. His time was short. Secondly, he recognized it was essential that he have periods of rest, reflection, and prayer. The opening part of this, ver- this passage, verse 42, Jesus went away to a solitary place. Why? How could God in flesh need to rest? I don't know, but he did. He needed to get away. He needed to get away from the crowds. There were times when he needed to get away from the disciples. He's just like any of us. We love being with other people, but there will come a time, those times in your life, periodically, when you need to get away from everybody. And be alone with God and reflect and just rest. How could God need to rest? I don't know, but in Genesis, you don't even get out of chapter 1 before God, after going six days of creation, spends a day of rest, and he sets it aside as a day of rest. Throughout the Old Testament law, there were even uh, uh, years called Jubilee years where you would, you would uh, cultivate your land and harvest the crops for six years, and on the seventh year, you didn't do anything to it because even the land needed to rest. Rest is a biblical principle. And we have missed that so much in the Western Hemisphere. I think that's one thing. Not that we can learn that many things from our European counterparts, but that's one thing we can, we can learn. In Europe, they average six weeks of vacation, and everybody takes them. In Germany, in addition to those six weeks, there's a whole month that they set aside, close everything, and everybody is forced to take a vacation. In America, we laugh at that. We'd fire people for even thinking about that or suggesting it because we have missed it. We've missed what God said. Rest and reflection and prayer is essential. Principle number three. Eliminate everything that can distract you from accomplishing your God-given goals. Eliminate them. Take them away. Even the good things. If they're distractions that keep you from doing what God has called you to do, take them away. Tony Schwartz who wrote an article in Harvard Business Review called Manage Your Energy, Not Your Time. He said this, he says, distractions are costly. Even a temporary shift in attention from one task to another, such as stopping to answer an email or taking an unnecessary phone call, for instance, increases the amount of time necessary to ultimately finish the primary task by as much as 25%. He said, it is far more efficient to fully focus for 90 to 120 minutes, take a true break, and then fully focus on the next activity. And John Ron, the the author of Take Charge of Your Life, says this, to eliminate distractions takes discipline. Discipline is the bridge between goals and accomplishment. Your best life is one where you set God-honoring goals, where you determine what is essential to accomplishing those goals, and you eliminate every distraction, even the good ones, that keep you from accomplishing the goals God has set for your life. You do those three things, and you're going to have much closer to the best life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a wonderful God. 
You've blessed us with so much. You have loved us to the point where you have secured our salvation if we'll just receive you as our Savior and Lord. And you want a a close, intimate relationship with us. You have goals for our lives. And you want us to set those goals, focus on those goals, and to list out what is essential to accomplishing those goals. And Lord, you want to help us. You know how cluttered our lives are, and you want to help us remove the clutter so we can clearly see the goals that you've called us to. Lord, help us from this point on to yield to you. Father, for those who need a relationship with you, who need to invite you to be their Savior, Lord, I pray that someone here who's lost would come and say, I need to receive Christ. Lord, I pray for those who need to come and be baptized that they would come. I pray for those who need to join this church. I pray for those who have other prayer concerns that need to be addressed. God, move in this service. May it be a life-changing moment for someone here. In Jesus' name, amen.